0: From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Book Podcast. I'm book editor John McMurtry. Today I'm talking to Susan Orlean, who has a delightful new book out titled The Library Book. As in her other books, including The Orchid Thief and Rin Tin Tin, she more or less stumbles on a good story she knew nothing about and runs with it, exploring it from many different angles. The library book is about the Los Angeles Central Library, but it's about so much more, as you'll hear. Welcome to town. This is the first day of your book tour, right? Uh, only several more, or several dozen, only several dozen more cities to go?
1: Uh, yes, it's. I would say 31 more cities to go. So 31. I feel like a prisoner who's making those little scratches on the wall as each day of my sentence is, yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: 31 though yeah wow I was joking yeah. about that but oh I'm not have a few ahead of you
1: uh, wow, I okay. definitely do wow wow wow
0: so you've, you've graciously stopped by our offices to talk about your new book the library book which by the way is gorgeous and listeners will just have to go to our website datebook.sfchronicle.com how's that for a plug to see how lovely it looks uh, now this is a book that almost didn't get written uh, you, you thought you might have written your last book what made you change your mind?
1: I really had decided that I had written plenty of books and I just didn't want to commit to another huge project out of feeling how draining it is and how exhausting it is. And in addition, I think I imagined that I wouldn't fall in love with another idea again. When I heard about this I I tried to swat it away like a fly um, because I thought, oh man, I don't want to do another book. I just don't want to make that kind of commitment. But it persisted and persisted. And the more I learned about the story, the more irresistible it became. And eventually I persuaded myself that this would be very easy to do. I could do it really quickly. Of course, that was completely wrong. Mm. But I, once I dove in, I Mm. was pretty happy to be in the water.
0: So let's hear about the story. It's, it's, I mean, there are many things going on in this book, of course, you know, it's centered on the Los Angeles Central Library and the fire that occurred there in 1986. It's a tribute to your mother. It's uh, partly an investigation, right, into the fire itself uh, and a celebration of libraries in general. But from the start, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, it's it's all of those. Um, it, it resists being described in um, what we in Hollywood call an elevator pitch, <sighs> um, it, or you need a lot of floors in the <sighs> elevator, because the, the simple description of it is that I had heard and was shocked to hear that this... A tremendous destructive fire had taken place in the Los Angeles Central Library the downtown main branch uh, it was the biggest library fire in the history of the United States and for a very long time was the largest structural fire in Los Angeles mm-hmm. which is really saying something right. um, <clears throat> and it was so amazing to me that that an event that struck me as so dramatic, was I was surprised that I had never heard about mm-hmm. it, even though I didn't live in L.A. at the time. You were
0: living in New York, and you've been in L.A. since 2011, is that right?
1: Yeah, I've been there, exactly. And I just couldn't believe that I, as a person who writes books and reads books and was living in New York City, where there's very much an awareness of libraries and publishing and books, that somehow this story Mm. had escaped my attention.
0: There had been another story halfway around the globe, of course, that got some press. uh, Yes. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster in the Soviet Union. I I love this detail that you include, that uh, Pravda, the Soviet newspaper, more or less ignored Chernobyl, but wrote about the Central Library fire. Right, I
1: thought it was absolutely hilarious that uh, they were working very hard at ignoring this catastrophe that was unfolding. And so what could be better than to write? And, and the writing about the library fire was full of a sort of an accusatory tone about how this was the nature of capitalism and that you don't take care of your libraries, and they burned down. Of course, just as an aside, the largest library fire Known in the known world uh, was actually in um, Leningrad, mm. and w- was you know destroyed in terms of the number of volumes destroyed was the biggest library fire ever. In that
0: Pravda piece, did they reference? And they in the they didn't ninth mention that. Or?
1: Yeah, they somehow didn't mention that. Actually, it occurred later, but it when it did occur, it got scant attention in mm. the Russian press. Mm-hmm.
0: So you heard about this fire. You also uh, were in the library as it happens, right? I mean, this is how you found out about it, right?
1: Exactly. I had been, I had just moved to L.A. and I had uh, given a talk at a luncheon for the Library Foundation. As a thank you, they I was asked whether I had ever been in the Central Library. And I said, no, I didn't, I knew, I thought I knew L.A. I didn't know that there was a downtown, and mm. I didn't know that there was a library downtown, so I covered up all my ignorance and said, no, no, I haven't gotten around to that yet. I'd love to see it. As I was being shown the building, which is an amazing building, and built in the 1920s, and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, very much a, a sort of whimsical, fantastical building,
0: Very colorful as well.
1: Yeah, very colorful, very unique. I mean, it's just an extremely distinctive building, Mm -hmm. full of art and all sorts of inscriptions all over the building. It's pretty amazing. And I was just thinking, gosh, you know, you could really write a cool book about this place. It's incredible. And there's so many stories about... The architect and the artist who did the murals and, you know, my mind is whirring even, oh, I was thinking, oh, this, I really don't want to do another book. And I don't want to do the kind of book that has absolutely no narrative thrust to it because I've already done that. At the time, the person giving me the tour stopped in front of a bookshelf and pulled off a book and took a big whiff out of the book. My first thought was that this was some strange thing people in L.A. did, <laughs> that they smelled their books as opposed to reading their books.
0: That's San Francisco, actually. Yeah,
1: and I said, uh, he said to me, you can smell the smoke in some of them. And I didn't know what he meant, and I I thought, well, maybe they used to let people smoke in the library, which seemed crazy, but I said, well, is it from you know, people smoking? Mm. And he said... No, it was from the fire. I said, what fire? And he said, the big fire, the big fire in 1986. Mm. And then he moved on to show me something else, and I said, wait, 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 what are you talking about? What fire? He said, well, you know, the library was closed for seven years, and that's when I thought, damn it. I mean, this is too interesting of a story. I'm not going to be mm. able to resist.
0: So not to give away too much of the story, um but— Tell us a little bit about the wonderfully named Harry Peak. Who who was he?
1: Harry Peak was a wannabe actor, a young man who he was good looking. He was charming. He was um, a liar. A liar, a fabulist. He invented marvelous stories about a dramatic life he wasn't actually living
0: possibly friends with uh burt reynolds I yes
1: burt was a good friend you or checked, at least i tried i tried um he was somebody who uh, left home after high school moved to los angeles and kind of drifted around in a lot of odd jobs he parked mm-hmm. cars he drove a limo all the while dreaming of being a movie star Mm. even though he had stage fright and he had no training as an actor he would go to auditions um, hoping to be hired as an extra um, dreaming and and telling his family anyway that he was on the very brink of stardom in a way he's almost an iconic uh, Los Angeles sort of figure, um, somebody who's really dreaming about a life that's larger than life, mm. that's everything, um, <clears throat> kind of a celebrated life, mm. almost more about the, the experience of celebrity rather than that he had a great passion for acting. Mm-hmm. The question remains, uh, had he ever been in the library in his life. Um, You know, one of the interesting things about libraries is they're open to anybody. Right. You don't register, you don't check in. I mean these days libraries have security cameras but you come and go in a library and nobody's monitoring who comes in and who comes out. The records of who had a library card which might have given some indication of whether he was a regular library patron, those were all lost. Um, not in the fire, but in a, a transition from one form of library card to another, those records were all lost. So we don't even know if he ever hmm. had was a patron of the library. But... A number of librarians had spotted a young blonde guy who was in the wrong place on Mm. the morning of the fire. And then to add to the reason that he got caught up in this, um, he told a lot of his friends that he had started it. Mm.
0: Mm. Well, and some people speculated that he wanted some sort of celebrity, and, and others would say, well, perhaps not that notoriety. So right. Uh, he, I mean a changing it, story.
1: it's it's something that uh on one hand being at the center of a, a big event was very much his style, but what he considered a big event was generally like having lunch with Cher <laughs> as opposed to starting a devastating fire mm, in mm, a library. Mm. Um but he could not he was a compulsive liar Mm. he lied about little things and big things all the time so the strange thing about a liar is that they confess to something that you wouldn't wish to confess to and then the question is well is he now telling the truth or is this yet another lie right um and it became a central mystery to me Mm. in the course of working on the book
0: and he's no longer with us of course
1: Right. So, And and I didn't know that. When I began working on the book, I assumed that I'd have a chance to talk to him. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. he passed away um, Mm -hmm. some years ago. Mm -hmm.
0: Because this is a book that you wrote, uh, you don't simply chronicle the history of the Central Library. You you get into its history, of course, but you also hang out with the library director, many librarians, uh, security guards, people who answer the phones. What's the most fun you had doing research there?
1: I kind of loved, um, well, two things. One is I loved being at the circulation desk. It really was fascinating to see, you know, you, you don't even have an ability to understand the scope and breadth of what a public library has. So sitting at the circulation desk and seeing people come up, and every single one would come up with another book where... On one hand, you couldn't believe such a book existed. Secondly, you couldn't believe someone existed who wanted to take that particular book out of the library. I mean, it was—it was just amazing. It, and the realization that we all have our own interests and uh, hobbies and curiosities, and and just seeing those books kind of flowing through the library was—I loved it. I found it absolutely fascinating and weirdly random, which is kind of wonderful. I, I also really loved being in the shipping department, which had something of the same quality. I mean, it hadn't occurred to me when I was told there was a shipping department. I thought, oh, well, they must occasionally ship things. I, I just didn't quite know what that meant. Then... Of course, I learned that um, 30,000 books are moved around the city every week and that you're in one branch and you request a book from another branch and that's how they get around the city. And it's not one or two people doing that in a week. It's 30,000 people Mm -hmm. doing it in a week. Realizing, again, it's the sense that there's just such a flow of – interests and curiosity and, and pursuit that mm-hmm. is going on all the time. It, mm-hmm. it, it really filled me with a lot of pleasure, actually, mm-hmm. thinking people are busy thinking about things mm-hmm. and then they want a book that can help them think about that mm-hmm. topic. And that was really, really cool.
0: I love that the library still operates something called the Info Now department. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Tell us about it's that. It's
1: actually really f- amazing. Yeah. Um, basically, it's human Google, mm-hmm. and of course, it prefigured Google. Yes. Um, the library was the ever since li- libraries have existed, people have called or come to the library to have questions answered. You would assume that these information desks would have disappeared as mm. soon as the internet came to be but they haven't people will call the phones ring all day long people are calling with questions either because they'd rather talk to a human or they don't really know how to phrase the question in a way that they could google it or or they're lazy and they find it easier to dial a phone than go to the computer but they get called all day long and some of the questions are So, (laughs) unusual. Um, Some are, uh, you know, there were calls uh, where the caller would ask the librarian what the actress Dana Delaney was up to (sighs) and what what she's been in in (sighs) the last couple of years. Someone else called while I was there asking whether a can of beans, of baked beans that she had in her pantry was safe to eat. And I'm not sure, I, I, I don't understand the process by which these callers were motivated to call the library, but it happens all the time. What was really fun was I found the logs from the calls that were made to the library over many mm. decades. Mm. And the change in the kinds of calls were fascinating. For instance, in World War II, Soldiers weren't allowed to tell their families where they were deployed. So they would give hints in their letters home saying, I am somewhere where women dress in black dresses with white aprons. Mm. And then the families would come to the library or call the library and ask what country, where Where was a country where women dressed that way? So right. they could, decipher Piece where together. their uh, relative was located mm-hmm. and it it really was amazing and it's such a timeline to see these questions and the way sure. they've evolved over time and change
0: outside of some of them that you include that you include in your book um uh, Has this been published elsewhere? Have they been, have they appeared in another book?
1: No, not as far as I know. I found them in the archives of Mm. the library, Mm. and they kept, you know, they were in a log book that had just been kept by the uh, reference librarians Mm. who maybe were logging it for their own purposes or...
0: What a treat to uncover yeah. that.
1: Oh, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought, what is this? And I started flipping through, and the questions were incredible. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were related to the entertainment business, saying um, "I, what kind of accent would an English-speaking person who was Hungarian have? And
0: That's specific.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that was one of the questions that um, they happened to find a – one of the librarians spoke Hungarian, so Mm -hmm. he was able to help the caller figure out what a Hungarian-inflected English accent would be.
0: Wow. Do you have a favorite country, uh, excuse me, do you have a favorite library in the country or the world, or what are some of your favorites?
1: Sentimentally, my favorite is the little branch library that I grew up going to with my mom Um, and in a way it's it's sort of a classic branch library it's not big it's really very cozy and you walk in and you can kind of scan the entire place with just a swivel of your head.
0: In Shaker Heights? Yes a suburb
1: of Cleveland and it was just to me it felt like paradise. Mm. It was a place that I could have anything I wanted, where I felt that I was given independence and freedom to walk around even when I was very young. And everybody in it seemed somehow magical because they were surrounded by all of these books.
0: Mm. For your research, you decided to burn a book. You didn't know quite which one to choose, but your husband had a brilliant Suggestion Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and it was an inspired choice not only because, of course, the novels about book burning, but it's um, it was also written by Bradbury, who grew up spending a lot of his time right in the Central Library, uh, and it so happens that the book burned in the 1986 fire, it, right? Right, which I in,
1: didn't know until I started so thinking about it and was um, cataloging what was lost in the fire. Out of the 400,000 books that were burned, all of the fiction between A and L burned up.
0: I also didn't know that the the original title for it was The Fireman. It's a story that he revisits right later in his career. and But then he asked, was it the fire department? Yeah,
1: that was an amazing anecdote. Um, yeah, it had been, he had called it The Fireman. He had worked on it, then he put it as- He was just frustrated with it and put it aside, and it was the um, McCarthy hearings, the, the Joseph, Senator Joseph McCarthy, Army McCarthy hearings that set him uh, back to that story, and he expanded it into a short novel, and he didn't like the title anymore, so he called the Los Angeles Fire Department he must have just come up with this idea of, well, maybe it'll be—I'll use something about the temperature at, at which paper burns, and the fire chief said, "Well, it burns at um, 451 degrees Fahrenheit."
0: A detail he probably found out by calling the library to get. Right. How <laughs> would you happen to know that? But uh, what surprised you the most about burning a book?
1: How fast it. Went up in smoke. It was really startling. Um,
0: paperback, right?
1: It was a paperback, and the library books would go a little slower because they were hard. They're hardcover, but it was almost like an explosion. It, it went so fast. But the thing that really surprised me was how hard it was to do. Even though I kept saying to myself, "Come on, I can just go buy another one." It's this is not. It was so uncomfortable Mm. i really at the last minute was on the very brink of saying i you know what i can't do this it's too it it's just a taboo it's something that i feel uncomfortable doing and finally thought well i'm i'm curious about why it's such a taboo Mm. so that's part of why it's interesting to try it
0: Mm. well certainly as you also explore Historically, there have been centuries of book burnings and everything from uh, books, uh, what, the Spanish burned books, right? Um, Written by Jews, uh, comic books in this past century in this country, right? It's
1: almost hard to imagine how many books in the course of history have been burned deliberately. Right. And certainly... um, I mean, there have been other library fires, but the deliberate destruction of books, and especially as an act of terrorism, really, in which books by a certain subculture are burned as a way of saying you don't exist, Mm -hmm. your your story, your history, your culture is of no value. It's gone. Mm -hmm. Um, World War II, there were. It was probably. A billion books. I I never added up all the numbers, but it was in the multi, multi millions of books destroyed. At some point, half of all the books in Germany were, in libraries, were gone. Mm. And same with Japan. And then the Germans made uh, burning libraries one of the, the focuses of their attack in any city which was to send a special commando unit to burn the libraries Mm. and they also had very dramatic public burnings of books by Jews and communists Mm -hmm. that were meant to be these festivals where you would bring a book and declare how corrupt it was and throw it on a bonfire and then these were all lit on fire.
0: There has been a resurgence of libraries in recent years that they're becoming more popular with people, young people, people under 30 specifically. Why do you think that is?
1: People under 30 are, first of all, less likely than people over 30 to have an office where they work. Hmm. So there's that accounts for this explosion of co-working spaces and people working in coffee shops. And We're just in an economy now where working on your own is very typical, it's very common. Finding places to work where you can do your work but be around other people, um, not interacting with them but just for the pleasure of having other people around is, I think, very appealing to many people who work in the gig economy and are working on their own. And libraries are the probably first and best co working space, in addition to the fact that they're free. I also think that um, millennials and younger are people who have really revived the notion of sharing, sharing cars, sharing scooters, uh, rather than. Owning everything Mm -hmm. and having it, your own ownership of it, you share it and use it when you need it, and other than that, you don't have it. And that's a real change. I think it's a a dramatic change from an era of feeling like you needed to own everything that you used and had that was... An important thing. I mean, the idea of... I mean, this is certainly true with cars, that car manufacturers are kind of concerned because it used to be the minute someone could afford a car, they'd buy one. Right. And people under the age of 30 can afford a car, but they their attitude is, well, I don't use it that much, so I'll just use a zip car when I need it. And other than that, I don't need to own a car. Mm. I don't care about it. So using the resources of a library is fits that state of mind so perfectly.
0: You also talk about how l- libraries are sanctuaries and troubled times. Is, what would that say about our times, do you think?
1: If you go into any library in the country and probably anywhere in the world, you see a lot of people who are homeless, who are troubled, who have addiction issues, and there's nowhere that's welcoming to them. And libraries remain steadfastly inclusive, which is both very challenging for them, but also remarkable. Mm -hmm. And an astonishing mission to have embraced, that they, they persist, even though it would be a lot easier to screen people out. And that is another quality that is unusual in the world, which is there aren't that many spaces where people of every different sort might share that space together, may share the resources together. And the library does that. And for them to really remain committed to that definition of who and what they embrace is, I think, really quite heroic.
0: With limited resources as well. Absolutely. Uh, I should give a plug here to the San Francisco Public Library, which, as you might know, won this year's Library of the Year Award given by the Library Journal. And the Central Library is similarly innovative uh, with programs, as you say, for the homeless. Uh, and they've got I hadn't heard about book bikes that they have. Uh, Yeah. But I thought, of all cities, they don't have bookmobiles. Uh,
1: Um, It's a funny thing, except uh, one of the reasons is there used to be bookmobiles. There was then a uh, concerted campaign to build many, many branches, and there are now 72 branches um, in Los Angeles. Mm. So the idea was... We really need to make these permanent. We bookmobiles are great, but we just need more branch libraries. I see. They may they may go back to having bookmobiles. People love them. Right now, they just have the book bikes, which obviously can't carry a, a wide array of books. But in a way, they almost serve more to remind people sure. that libraries are out there.
0: Mm-hmm. There, I mean, around the world too. You get into how uh, are mules, right? Uh, Reindeer in Norway, I think there uh, are a
1: lot of donkey mobile libraries. They're camel mobile libraries. There, this was my as a person who loves animals. I was very pleased that I could manage to squeeze animals into this book. Um, No
0: dog. uh, No dog libraries. I'm sorry
1: to say, but I think we could somehow lobby to change that. But in in a lot of um, in a lot of developing countries where. Roads are not good, and the easiest, best way to travel, especially in tribal areas, is by some animal transport. There are dozens and dozens of animal-powered mobile libraries Mm -hmm. that travel into very remote parts of the world, bringing um, library supplies they also often will bring a little Wi-Fi um, you know, modem so people can get a little bit of Wi-Fi briefly and they drop books off and then when they come back the next month, they get the books back and bring a new batch of books. It's pretty amazing.
0: Repaid with good snacks, I hope, the animals.
1: Yes, uh, they they eat the books occasionally, <laughs> but only occasionally. <laughs>
0: Someone tries to, a little anecdote, hack into the, into the central library almost every day, uh, mostly Russians and Chinese. Why is that?
1: I was very disturbed when I heard this, yeah. or more importantly when I heard the reason, which is because you would think, why would you hack into the library's <laughs> website? You can go to the library's website. There's no There's no portal through which you must pass in order to use it. Um, The head of the website said that it it was his opinion that it was people practicing to hack into more secure and more valuable websites, Mm. banks and so forth. and, And that they use that. It's a big municipal website, obviously, but that their intent is to practice their hacking skills and then go somewhere else and use them.
0: I don't know what to say to that, but it's sad. <laughs> uh, have you seen your book in a library yet?
1: No, I haven't.
0: I suppose it's just out. But...
1: Yes, well, it came out yesterday, yeah. and I someone just posted on Twitter that she was the first person to check it out of her library, nice. and she posted a picture of the book with the library catalog Stickers, and mm. I thought, "Wow, that it's it's a perfect meta moment yeah. of the library book in the library."
0: And it's got a nice spine here. That uh, little flame right symbol below the colophon yeah. here. Yeah, it's quite sweet. Uh, is there hope of a movie adaptation of this book, as happened with the Orchid Thief?
1: There is. Um, oh. We'll be knowing a little more about that pretty soon. So uh, it'll be really interesting mm. I think and it, it's a very it's such a rich story that sure. um, I can almost imagine what's harder is to figure out which part of it to right. highlight as opposed to there not being enough mm. enough there
0: if you saw it on a screen how would you I mean since there are so many options these days as a series or a feature film how do you how would you? <laughs>
1: To me, the library is an ongoing institution. It would feel most natural as a series because that's they embody the idea of continuity and, and continuum. And right. rather than it being a story that begins and ends, to mm-hmm. me it feels like an exploration of a world that kind of goes on indefinitely.
0: So Netflix, here we come. Okay, Right. You buckle said your seatbelts. Yes, I'm pre- hope
1: I'll know pretty soon.
0: All right, I'm hoping you can do a little reading here for us. I've got a spot marked where you you talk about your mother. There's some touching moments in here. Your your mother who died uh halfway through your writing this book, right? Right. Oh. How about this spot right here? My mother Great. imbued me.
1: My mother imbued me with a love of libraries. The reason why I finally embraced this book project, wanted and then needed to write it, was my realization that I was losing her. I found myself wondering whether a shared memory can exist if one of the people sharing it no longer remembers it. Is the circuit broken? The memory darkened? My mother was the one person besides me who knew what those gauzy afternoons had been like. I knew I was writing this because I was trying hard to preserve those afternoons. I convinced myself that committing them to a page meant the memory was saved somehow from the corrosive effect of time. The idea of being forgotten is terrifying. I fear not just that I personally will be forgotten, but that we are all doomed to being forgotten, that the sum of life is ultimately nothing. That we experience joy and disappointment and aches and delights and loss make our little mark on the world and then we vanish and the mark is erased and it is as if we never existed. If you gaze into that bleakness even for a moment, the sum of life becomes null and void because if nothing lasts, nothing matters. It means that everything we experience unfolds without a pattern and life is just a wild, random, baffling occurrence, a scattering of notes with no melody. But if something you learn or observe or imagine can be set down and saved, and if you can see your life reflected in previous lives and can imagine it reflected in subsequent ones, you can begin to discover order and harmony. You know you are part of a larger story that has shape and purpose, a tangible, familiar past, and a constantly refreshed future. We are all whispering in a tin can on a string, but we are heard, so we whisper the message into the next tin can and the next string. Writing a book, just like building a library, is an act of sheer defiance. It is a declaration that you believe in the persistence of memory.
0: Lovely. Thank you for that. I have just one Final question. You you did say in this book that you weren't sure you were going to write another book. How about now? Can we expect more from you?
1: I I understand now that there is a postpartum experience after you finish spending five or six years on a project that makes it impossible to imagine that you would do it again. But I also know that I'm a writer. That's what I do. That's what I'll always do, and that certain subjects call out to be books rather than a magazine story or a tweet, and that if I keep my eyes open, I'm sure to find another one of those stories one of these days. All right.
0: Well, till till then, thank
1: you. Thanks so much.
0: You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to our guest, Susan Orlane. Our producer today is Peter Hartlob. Executive producer is Fernando Diaz, and our editor in chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart's Symphony 40 in G Minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts.